0: This is Brian Lazar, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 3.2 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, as well as our good friends at 10 Barrel Brewing drink beer outside. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, I just got done with a bike ride, dipped over to Moab, Utah on my road trip through um, mostly Colorado, but uh, came over to Moab for a a great wedding this weekend. Congratulations, Ann and Rob. A little shout out there great weather and uh, Moab is is such a fun place this time of year in October. Uh, Some great mountain biking and dirt biking to be had down here for sure. Um, Last week I went to the Colorado Snow and Avalanche Workshop and thanks for everybody that was there for swinging by and, and showing their support. It was awesome to hear from some listeners about their favorite episodes and just really got me jazzed up on continuing to do this and 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 hearing that appreciation from the community means a whole lot to me um so thanks for doing that and and uh you know lots of other saws coming up on october 20th is the california snow and avalanche workshop in in tahoe october 26th is you saw in salt lake october 27th is the northwest snow and avalanche workshop in seattle also on October 27th is Wyoming SAW in Jackson Hole. November 3rd is the Eastern Snow and Avalanche Workshop in Freiburg, Maine. And also on November 3rd is the Northern Rockies Snow and Avalanche Workshop in Whitefish, Montana. I'll be speaking at that SAW, so um, if you're there, I will see you. Uh, November 10th is Bend SAW, first annual SAW for, for Bend, Oregon. I'll also be speaking there, so hope to see you. At that one as well. And then November 26th. Is the Montana State University Saw in Bozeman. So get out there and and do some networking. And and dust off that snow brain. For the upcoming winter season. Let's see what else is going on here. ISSW also wrapped up this week. Over in Innsbruck, Austria. If you were there and, and participated. And want to contribute a short little audio file of your thoughts of the, the workshop, the conference um, love to throw it on the air um, planning on putting together a little compilation um, sometime in November for the ISSW roundup um, and it would be great to have a bunch of different um, points of view from, from folks that were there so if you were there and would like to share your experience please feel free to reach out you can email me at the avalanche hour podcast at gmail.com or find a contact uh, form for my website tripledub.theavalanchehour.com uh, it'd be great to get some community input on on folks it could be you could talk about a poster you saw or a favorite presentation or just a, an event you know it doesn't even have to be necessarily what went on at the conference but maybe maybe your favorite activity that you did over there in austria Saw some pictures. It looked like the weather was great and, and uh, sure did look like a good time. So, I am still on the road for the month of October, heading back to Colorado tomorrow. I'll be going to Gosa Springs and interviewing Mark Mueller, a CAIC forecaster, and then heading to Crested Butte from there, um, getting in touch with Billy Rankin, a forecaster for Irwin Guides Cat Skiing Operation as well as Ben Pritchett, uh, another avalanche forecaster and, and educator over there in Crested Butte. So if you have any questions for those fine folks, send them my way and I'll work them into the interview. Today's episode is featuring Brian Lazar. Brian is the the deputy director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. It was great to sit down with him right before Seesaw and, uh, and talk about What it is like being an avalanche forecaster and some of the ins and outs of the CIAC. And if you listen to this interview, you will find out if the deputy director has a badge and guns. That was my biggest question for Brian. So tune on in and here we go with Brian Lazar.
2: Well, welcome, Brian, to the show. Thanks for making the time. It's no. nice to sit down with you today. My pleasure. I was hoping you could just introduce yourself, give us your background and, and how you entered the snow and avalanche world and what your careers look like. Yeah,
0: sure. Um, you know, there's probably most of us in the avalanche world. It's not a linear path, so... I couldn't have kind of planned where I ended up now, but, you know, I'm happy where I'm at. Um, but I got into the avalanche game um, with my early interest in, in mountain guiding. So I lived in Crested Butte when I was uh, right out of high school. I went there and uh, expressed my interest to uh, Jean Paviard, who at the time was working on getting the American Mountain Guide Association um, accepted by the uh, IFMGA or the international body. Um, and I was an apprentice guide for him. He graciously took me under his wing, even though I had really no experience. Um, so I kind of just walked into his office and said, I want to be a mountain guide. And he goes, okay, uh, it takes a lot of work and there's a lot of training. And so I started training with him, um, in ski guiding. And then I started to be in my pursuit of becoming a ski guide. I had to go through a lot of uh, the avalanche training. So at that time in the U.S. Um, We had things that were called level ones, but what a level one meant was kind of all over the map. So it was anything from, you know, uh, one day out with your college rec center to, you know, an eight day course with the Canadian Amateur Association. So what a level one meant in the United States um, was kind of all over the map. And so I was brought up in a, kind of a blend of the Swiss system, which at that time was teaching kind of three by three, have education and some of Munter's stuff. And that's what Jean was teaching at the time, so that's what I started teaching. And then we started to build Airy, um, and we started to get the Avalanche program a little bit more buttoned up. And that was one of the requirements uh, that the international body was requiring of the AMGA. In other words, if your guys take a le- if your guides or aspiring guides take a level one course, we need to know what that means. And so we had to kind of start pushing towards standardization. Um, And that's the genesis of ARI was to try and kind of standardize um, avalanche education in the United States um, initially just for, you know, kind of the the guiding community. But now that 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 push towards standardization has you know, kind of permeated all the different aspects of the avalanche world. So what we teach and how we teach it has come a long way since I first started. Um, so I did that for many years. I was going between Crested Butte and Boulder where I was going to undergraduate school um, once I became a Colorado resident. So I was bouncing between kind of Boulder and Crested Butte, guiding sometimes, taking some semesters off, finishing up my undergraduate. Um, when I finally finished my undergrad, I just started mountain guiding full-time. And so I was kind of going, oh, all over the place really at that time. So Jean was kind of getting um, a little frustrated with the permitting system and that kind of thing in the United States. Um, he was already an IFMG, IFMG guide because he was from Switzerland. So he was interested in kind of uh, getting rid of the U.S. domestic portion of his guiding business. And I was finishing up college, and so I took um, part of the avalanche program that was running in the front range and started my own mountain guide service with a couple friends um, that were also mountain guides. Uh, called Alpine World Ascents. Um, myself and Howie Schwartz are no longer involved with that. Howie has branched off many, many years ago, 20 years ago, and now he's the owner of Sierra Mountain Guides down in Bishop. Um, but our old partner, Marcus Beck, is still running Alpine World Ascents um, out of Boulder. And so that was kind of originally just a spin-off of you know, John's first adventures mm. to the edge. The Crested Butte portion was bought by Alan Bernholtz, who turned that into Crested Butte Mountain Guides. And so I worked closely with Alan over the years and um so I just was guiding and I did that for about ten or twelve years. I was mostly guiding in uh, Alaska. I spent a time working in the St. Eli- Rango St. Elias Park up there and uh, lived in McCarthy. Um I spent a lot of time guiding in South America. Um I was based mainly out of Juarez, Peru. But then I would kind of station myself there for four or five months a year and then guide um, kind of all over South America, you know, Bolivia and Ecuador and Patagonia. Um, occasional trips to like Mount Cook in New Zealand, Kilimanjaro, things like that. So I did that for, you know, a little over a decade. Um, you know, I'd be here for portions in the winter, guiding in places like El Dorado Canyon, you know, around Colorado. And after about 12 years of kind of traveling, I don't know, seven months a year and living out of a duffel bag. I was kind of getting oh a little burnt out as glamorous as it all kind of sounds. Um, I just needed, I was looking for a change. I didn't want to kind of uh, be a mountain guide the the rest of my life or I didn't want to need to be a mountain guide. I was getting to the point where that was, that was my only skill set. really. Uh, the stuff I had learned in college was rusty and distant and it would have been hard for me to find a different kind of job other than guiding. And I just, um, kind of looked at my mentors, guys like John and people that were still guiding as they got in their fifties and sixties. And it works for many people. Um, it just wasn't something I wanted to do. Or I just wanted to have some more options. So I ended up going back to graduate school, um, at the university of Colorado, but I was, uh, working through the Institute of Arctic and Alpine research. So my advisor kind of, uh, Took me under his wing. He was doing most of his research. This was in glaciology, so it's kind of snow and ice mechanics stuff. And I was, I had, I was going back to graduate school for engineering, um, which means I had to go back and do a lot of these prereqs. And so he was one of my teachers for just a prereqs, like statics, uh you know, structural kind of engineering course. Um And I did well in the course. He was looking for a graduate student for research in the Chugach on um, some uh, glaciers up there. And he needed a graduate student that had the engineering skills and could do the math, but was pretty comfortable moving around and traveling on glaciers. And so he offered me a a research position with him. So then I ended up staying through grad school. I worked with Tad Pfeffer doing that stuff. Um, Eventually got my graduate degree. Uh, My thesis work was all done on you know, the bench glacier in the the Chugat Trench up near Thompson Pass. (laughs) So once I finished graduate school, I went into the consulting world. And so I was working for an environmental consulting firm based in Boulder. And I was doing mostly at first um, like hydrology work and snow hydrology work. So looking at, you know, hydrology and snowmelt runoff and forecasts for municipalities that in the West most rely on snowmelt for a good chunk of their water supply so I was working doing a lot of that stuff but that gradually morphed into me working on climate change impact assessments Um, and this was at the time when the ski industry was getting very interested in planning for what they kind of saw coming down the pike and so I ended up working a lot for the ski industry um, projecting impacts to their industry um, in the face of climate change so I did that for Six years, I want to say. Um, It was a hard transition in some ways. The work was really interesting and uh, intellectually stimulating. Um, You know, it certainly challenged my brain a little bit more than, you know, mountain guiding did on a day to day basis. But for me to get most of my work done, I had to be at a computer. And so that transition for me after so long working and living outside was um, a little tough, but. So, I was kind of starting to scale back. I was still doing, I was trying to work kind of this balance. And so, I was still involved with ARI. I was still teaching avalanche courses. I was still doing a little bit of ski guiding, even though I was consulting. I was trying to trim back the consulting work. During that period, I was still executive director of ARI there for a while. So, I had two hats on. And I was in frequent contact with, you know, Ethan Green, who at the time and still is the director of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. And he used to kind of, you know, send me jobs and be like, hey, here's a job posting. Can you send this out to the area email list? And we would do that. So we'd be in frequent contact because. Uh, um, and then this deputy director position opened and uh, Ethan's like, hey, you should, you should take a look at this job more carefully before you just send it out. Um, but I, I do want you to send it out, but you should read it. And so I called him and be like, huh, yeah, I might be interested in interviewing for this one. And so. um I connected with Ethan. I went in for the interview. I got the deputy director job at the Colorado avalanche information center here. And I'm going on my ninth year at the avalanche center. So, yeah, that's awesome. That seems like a pretty colorful roadmap. Yeah. It's not one you could plan for, you know, so it's like, you know, nowadays I'm getting to the point in my career where people are asking like, you know, how should I plan on, you know, becoming an avalanche forecaster or, or things like that. And, um, You know, it's hard because there's not a lot of these kinds of jobs. And so to plan and just becoming an ambulance forecaster is a tough thing to advise people on. Mm. So I usually tell people to kind of get the skills that you want. And if you're in the right place at the right time, you're ready to pounce. Um, You know, certainly going down the guiding career path is a little bit more straightforward than it used to be. Um, Certification, more and more certified guides, you know, getting churned out by the EMGA every year. Um, And that's becoming a more viable career path, although many of them still leave the United States once they get their international certification to make better money elsewhere, but
2: right yeah. It seems like a
0: another good thing that that helps people out is the willingness to move around, yeah, it helps because you know these jobs there's just there's not a ton of them in the avalanche world, and so you kind of have to be. Oh, I don't know. Either willing to kind of stay put in a place that you really like, but may not have the job you want, or be willing to move and hopefully someday you kind of end up with the per, you know the the job you want and the place you want.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so, deputy director, what does that look like, and does it
0: involve a badge? No, it, there's no badge and there's no guns. The title's <laughs> like really misleading. Uh, it just means I'm the, kind of the second in charge. So, like when. Um, Ethan's the director. I'm the deputy director. Um, We've got 20 forecasters on staff for our operation, which is pretty large. Um, And It's mainly due to the fact that we do both backcountry recreational avalanche forecasting at the CAIC, as well as work closely with CDOT. Um, the, our Department of Transportation to do avalanche forecasting and then uh, uh, mitigation for our state transportation corridors so not many there's no other avalanche centers in the US where they're both in the same shop and so that's why we have a lot of people so we have s- forecasters with primary responsibilities um, we do shift and we move resources as we need but um, we have got some forecasters primarily focused on certain sections of highway and some forecasters focused uh, primarily on backcountry areas. And so, um, you know, my job is to kind of make sure that, uh, all these programs are running smoothly. Um, I, I do, mo- I spend more of my focus on, uh, the backcountry avalanche forecasting program, um, where Ethan spends a little bit more time on the transportation focus, but we do share duties. Um, and I do a uh, halftime forecasting load. So I halftime forecast, um, so which is, a, you know, several shifts a month, um, out of the Boulder office, and we do weather and avalanche forecasting for backcountry and highway operations.
2: So is that is that the the relationship with Cdot? Is that the reason that this is a state funded program as opposed to most of the other avalanche centers in the
0: country? No, we actually, for, forest service? we uh, the the history of the CAIC um, kind of pulling away from the U.S. Forest Service system predates the the contractual agreement with Cdot. Hmm. Which started in, I believe, 1992. Um, the former director, Knox Williams, uh, made the decision some years ago uh, to move it into a, a state, uh, into the state of Colorado, and out of the U.S. Forest Service for um, some different opportunities that may have opened up for fundraising. Gotcha. Yeah, but that might that history. I'm not exactly clear on why Knox made that decision uh, to move into the state system, but it might be worth following up with him. He's still around. He lives, yeah. in, he lives in Cedar Edge. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's pretty unique to the the rest of the centers. Yeah, yeah. Um do you think that it it has its advantages? Well,
0: I can I've never worked for US Forest Service mm-hmm. centers, so I can't really speak to what that experience is like, but for us I think it makes a ton of sense because um we're in the state, so the the mandate is we have to forecast avalanche hazard for the entire state of Colorado. So we can't just take a slice of mountains that, you know, we feel like we can cover. Um, and, and then ignore other areas. So we have to cover the entire state of Colorado. So that requires a lot of um, infrastructure to get a center like that going. And so since we've got that infrastructure built and set up, it makes sense for us to also handle the highways because it's like the added cost is not as much as if you had to start a program from scratch. So being able to do cover both programs, there is some utility in combining those resources. Yeah, it seems to make total sense. Um, so it's
2: a large organization, as you said, can you talk about the structure of CAIC the different zones
0: and yeah the- I, we're you know just in terms of people we're certainly I think one of the biggest avalanche centers in the world mm-hmm. um, and in terms of area you know um, we cover you know a similar kind of regional scope to like what um avalanche canada might although of course up there they've got avalanche canada for the backcountry operations and then they've got their ministry of highways that take care of their highway operations but we cover these large areas and so we've got a main central office um forecasting office which is located in the national weather service in the NOAA facility in boulder and so we have a They've been kind enough to carve out a little corner for us in the Weather Service office. So we're in the same cubicle as all the National Weather Service forecasters, which is really nice because we have access to all of their weather visualization tools, models, um, other forecasters, you know, meteorologists that are right there on the floor. So we've got five of us that rotate out of that office. All the weather forecasting um, comes out of that office. So um, that's weather for 10 backcountry forecasting zones that we have in the state. And then we've got, oh, it's 19 or so different. No, it's more than that. It's uh, it's well into the 20s, a number of kind of highway corridors that we cover. And we forecast uh, weather for those as well. That all comes out of the Boulder office. Those, Those of us who rotate out of the Boulder office then also write backcountry avalanche forecasts. For some of the zones that don't have assigned backcountry avalanche forecasters, like um, the front range zone, the Sangre de Cristo zone. And then we cover for the days where a backcountry avalanche forecaster um, has their days off. Mm. So those are five of us that rotate out of the Boulder office. And then we've got backcountry forecasters. And we've got an office, um, a new one that just opened up in Durango, and they cover the South San Juan's uh, forecast zone. We've got one in Telluride that covers the North San Juan zone we've got one in Carbondale and they cover uh the Aspen zone and the Grand Mesa zone and then we've got another backcountry office in the Gunnison Valley. They cover uh the Crest I'm sorry the Gunnison zone which in which Crested Butte lies and then the Sawatch zone. And then we've got a forecaster um uh, based in uh, Eaglevale. They cover the Vail Summit County zone and the Steamboat zone. Um and so we work closely with those, and they've got satellite offices. And then we've got our satellite offices for the highway operations. So we've got a forecaster stationed in Pagosa Springs, who's covering areas like kind of North Canyon and Wolf Creek Pass. We've got two forecasters in Silverton, which cover the fairly densely uh, avalanche path packed uh, you know, Highway 550 that runs from kind of your over to Silverton and then over Mollus and Colbank Pass to Durango. So there's. Um, hundreds of avalanche paths there. So we've got two forecasters in Silverton, and then we've got one in Ridgeway, who covers that north side of the canyon and covers Head Pass, which runs over towards Telluride. And then we've got two guys at the Eisenhower Tunnel, um, which kind of cover Berthed, Lovell Pass, and the, the tunnel operations, as well as Vail Pass. Um, we've got a highway forecaster in Carbondale, which covers a bunch of avalanche paths scattered throughout the western slope. Um, we've got a forecaster works with the Leadville office who covers Fremont and Monarch passes. And I hope I didn't forget anybody, uh, but I think that's most. And then we asked, uh, uh, we team up um, when we open seasonal closures like Independence Pass. We've got forecasters on each side of that pass C uh, CDOT goes in there to start plowing We forecast for them
2: for the springtime.
0: For the springtime. So yeah. when they go up and they're plowing the snow out for a place like Independence Pass, we've got a forecaster on each side because we can't drive over. Mm-hmm. Um, Man, and that's a lot of gears in the machine. It's a lot to keep track of, yeah. So <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a big operation. And so, you know, we've got our hands full.
2: Yeah. What are, what are some of the keys to
0: success of, of running a smooth operation? Well, I think, you know, we really spend a lot of time on trying to communicate as a group. It's, you know, we've got 20 people, 21 because we have, do have a, an HR and admin support person that works for us out of the, the Department of Natural Resource Office down in Denver. So 21 total. Um, and often people scattered throughout the state. And so it's a challenge for us is, you know, effective communications because we're not going into the same office, the same place every day. And so we've come up with, you know, some tools to help do that. We try to get together once a month in person so we can go over um, everything that's going on. Um, And then we are communicating with each other pretty much on a daily basis because we're, you know, 24-7 type of operation. And so like in a morning forecast shift, for example, um, the Boulder Forecaster starts the earliest because they got to get the weather done first. So their shift typically starts at about 4 in the morning. Um, They're getting the weather products out by about six um, at the latest. Um, During that time, you know, starting around 530, people are logging on and we have a forecast discussion group, which we run through Skype. So we have a Skype chat that's going on every morning. So anyone who's up and forecasting that day, we just kind of starts. they're waking up, they're reporting their weather, we start to talk about operational issues for the day, um, and then we try to coordinate our forecasting. So we have a Skype discussion that everyone participates in. We use things like Google Docs, That so our forecasting process is done on uh, Google Docs Sheets, so we can all see what each other are doing, and we can work on the same kind of process concurrently and then we talk to each other on the phone talk about conditions that kind of thing um, and then when the morning rush is done and we get the products out people um the backcountry forecasters will go conduct their field work so they'll go into the field or gather information that we think we need at the end of that day they come home and they file field reports Describing conditions, making videos and uploading photos, um, essentially a daily assessment of what you know, the hazards that they think that they witness for the day. Um, the highway folks may jump on first thing in the morning and Skype and then take off if there's a storm going on. Um, they may have to go out in the middle of the night. Um, and so uh, the highways are really condition dependent, essentially, when they're going off. And we think there's going to be avalanches that threaten the roadway. We're on it, um, regardless of the time of day. Mm-hmm.
2: And so most of these forecasters is a seasonal position as the deputy director, are you employed year round by the state. Yeah, there's a
0: few of us. So we, most of them work seasonally. Um, you know, we've got a full crew from November through April, mm-hmm. a couple of the um, highway folks, uh, well, the highway forecasters still a little bit earlier in October. Some of them may stick around into May. Um, mm-hmm. Like if we're opening things like independence pass, which that, that operation takes place in May. And then a lot of them, are down to a, a very small number of hours uh, throughout the summer where they might just be checking email, working on small little projects, that kind of thing. There is a handful of us, um, four or five of us that work closer to full time in the summer. Um, and that's, you know, doing things like all of the project work that we really can't get to during the operational season because it's just so busy. So it's end of year reports, it's budgeting, it's, um, it's any of the research we do in the papers that we do, it's um, working on our systems, like you know, our GIS systems, our database systems, um, and a lot of you know, kind of computer work and cleanup.
2: Right. Yeah. Is there any way to track how many people access the CAIC forecasts in a given season or a given day, any time period?
0: There is. I mean, we certainly track you know through like um, analytics. You know, how many mm-hmm. people are visiting um, the website, which forecast they're reading. Um, we also have a mobile app, and we can kind of track how many people are using that. If people are just like reading the forecast, today, like if someone prints it out and posts it somewhere, we can't check those people. Sure. But,
2: yeah. Any idea? Do you have those numbers on hand? or, or how don't. You, what about the trend that you've seen in the last, say,
0: five to eight years? Well, there's – yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, things have changed. We used to just have a hotline, and so, you know, we watched the numbers of people that were calling a hotline – uh, kind of plummet over the years and web traffic would go up. Um, one of our forecasters, Spencer Logan, is really kind of the guy who tracks our web traffic, but it certainly peaked for, you know, spiking quite dramatically there. Um, kind of coinciding with, you know, the spike we saw in backcountry use starting in kind of the mid 90s. There's certainly a lot more people out there than there used to be. Um, but now people are accessing, you know, avalanche information in a whole variety of ways. And so it may not just be the website. So I think that. Web traffic is not increasing as fast as it did in the very early stages, mm-hmm. um, despite, you know, just to continue to rise in use. But people are getting their information through things like, um, you know, the phone app, that kind of thing. And we also put out uh, radio uh, spots. So we post MP3s every day. So there's radio stations that will air those things or the public can just go listen to them on the MP3.
2: Gotcha. Doing anything with social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram? We have
0: not been until this year, so that's all changing. So we have, um, at most centers in the Avalanche Centers in the United States, we've got an associated nonprofit, um, the Friends of the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. Um, So up until this year, they were really the one who, they ran the, um, they have their own Facebook page. Um And they would kind of take our forecast, our avalanche warnings, things like that, and put it on their Facebook page. But we are two really, you know, we we are two separate organizations. And so, you know, our mission is kind of the, the public safety stuff. And so this year we are moving into more social media. Um, So we've got a shift now in our staff where we have a social media person who will take a shift each morning from about 6 to 8 in the morning. And we will be uh, – we have been on Twitter for years. And so we would tweet our avalanche forecasts um out uh, with each zone every morning. And that's been going on for a number of years. But of course the you know, the amount of information you can put in a, in a tweet is, is limited. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the Twitter feed is not necessarily new, but it is changing. And so now we're moving towards we'll have our own Facebook page, the Avalanche Center, instead of just the and the friends will have their own. But we provide the public safety content and have much hazard information. And they provide things like events and fundraisers. And uh, and so sometimes that content will overlap, as you might imagine. And then we'll have an Instagram feed and uh, a Twitter feed. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Do, you, do you know offhand what those handles are just for our listeners? If well, they has. are not quite yet finalized, but uh, we'll have them finalized pretty soon, and I could shoot, certainly shoot them your way. I mean, if yeah. if
2: if people don't know how to search for Colorado Avalanche Information Center on Instagram, then they probably shouldn't be using it. So.
0: Yeah, well, it, we should, we, we will it be easy to find, and we'll have <laughs> we'll have handles for kind of each backcountry zone. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. What's the deal with the uh, Crested Butte Avalanche Center? They are not part of the CAIC. Is that no? They're right? their
0: own uh, independent nonprofit. Um, so they got started. Years ago, actually, while I was kind of still living there, um, so back then at the time, like I said, we were just putting out hotlines, and we had hotlines that covered, the state was split up into three zones. So we had the the northern, the central, and the southern mountains. And so Crested Butte was sitting in the southern mountains, but it's a pretty vast area. And so they were hoping to get some more localized information. And so they started the Crested Butte Avalanche Center. So they're a local nonprofit, and they cover a smaller region within our Gunnison forecast zone, right around the Crested Butte, Mm -hmm. the town of Crested Butte. And uh, we work with them on data sharing and information. So that morning forecast discussion that I mentioned, um, they're on that with us participating. And so we coordinate um, Avalanche Safety Messaging with them for the uh, Crested Butte and the larger Gunnison zone, which encompasses it.
2: Mm -hmm. Any other coordination with other other groups? Do you guys y'all you know, talk
0: to the ski areas? Or? Oh yeah, so part of the morning workflow is you know we're getting information digested from you know, large swaths of the public, but then most snow safety teams throughout the state. So that would include ski areas. They send us weather reports. Some, um, some will send us avalanche reports. Uh, we'll talk to them on the phone, guiding operations, cat skiing, you know, heli skiing, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're we're kind of a, a data hub. Um, for, you know, they have much information on the state. So we try to digest all that information and then, uh, you know, package it into a, a nice, neat, clear, concise public safety message for the public consumption and get mm-hmm. that out.
1: Do you, Brian, do you
0: ever
2: see anything coming down the line in, in way of info X, this year this year's being, um, you know, you're able to get it in the United States now, mm-hmm. right? So, um, any sort of information sharing like that amongst a professional community that you see coming down down the line?
0: Um, you know, Infox. Some people are using Infox. Some people are using kind of internal email threads. Um, you know, and we're, we're, we're usually involved in some of those. We'll have to see how many people kind of adopt and get Infox down here.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, we're not doing Infox this year because it doesn't. Um, doesn't add much utility to what we're already doing. So our observation and field report platform does kind of what we need and allows for a little bit more uh, photo and video embedding um, and that kind of thing. But if we reach a kind of a critical mass um, of people using Infox, you know, we we talk closely with the guys in, in Canada and you know we can establish a data feed there. So sure. we'll have to just kind of see what happens with it down here. Um, I know the AMGA is embracing it and they want to use it for you know like at least their own courses and guiding operations. Um, I don't know how many individual guides will start to use it. You know, we've seen these kind of data sharing platforms, you know, um, come and go to some degree. It's a challenge for us because the more fragmented the data gets, the harder it is for us to pull in.
2: Right. Um, So one of the duties as a forecaster, I imagine, is to conduct accident investigations. Um, What are some themes that you've noticed over your years as a forecaster? Uh, in those accident investigations or in the avalanche accidents themselves.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, one of the more gory parts of the job and, you know, it's emotionally draining, you know, talking to survivors and family members and things like that. But we really do feel like we need to get these reports out there with the idea that if we can document these things, we put the information out there and hopefully um, can provide information that would prevent these types of things from happening in the future. Um, God, kind of, you know every avalanche accident is is very different, um, but you know I guess some of the common themes are it's it's rarely you know one mistake that ends up in a fatal avalanche accident. It's usually kind of a series of things um, that were missed or went wrong on the way to an avalanche accident. That might be a common theme. Hmm. And that, you know, there's you know very few avalanche accidents are not preventable. You know, so the whole notion that you know avalanches are kind of this bolt of lightning out of nowhere and you know, everyone's uh, susceptible is a little bit of a misnomer to me. There are certainly ways you can, you know, avalanches are predictable. I mean, that's what we do. We predict them. Um, we're not always perfect in doing so, but um, I think some of this, the real basic stuff uh, that is taught in more modern avalanche courses really does kind of, you know, I think help save lives. Um, repeatable decision-making processes, employing things like checklists, um, reading the forecast, um, you know, all the get the points that are in the no before you go type program. Um, if you filter most avalanche accidents through those, if we'd kind of just followed a you know, basic decision-making protocol in avalanche terrain, uh, most accidents uh, would be prevented. All right, um, but that's you know, it's. But like I said they're all different because everyone does have their own level of risk acceptance. Some people are just more willing to take risk than others and uh, it's certainly not for me to judge someone for wanting to take risk. Um, our job is to provide them information so they can at least make informed decisions. We don't want people taking risks they're unaware of.
2: Sure. So you mentioned that you know this that is kind of the like gory aspect and it can take an emotional toll something that uh, I just interviewed Jake Hutchinson a, a few days ago about we were talking about PTSD, you know, from the rescuer's point of view um, or the forecaster's point of view or the snow safety person's point of view. Um, any Care to share any thoughts on that, like some ways that. Have you dealt with that at all? It's a tough subject to broach within our community, but I think it's coming to the forefront. I think we need to talk about it more.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a good topic. It shouldn't be taboo to discuss this kind of stuff. Um, you know, much like anyone who suffers from PTSD, it's like everyone has a very different reaction to this kind of thing, um, and so it's really personal how people digest, you know, interacting with, um, you know, victims or survivors or dead bodies. Um, you know, who knows? I don't, I haven't personally feel like I've experienced it, but you know, I'm accumulating these encounters over the span of my career. So who's to say, you know, maybe it comes, comes back to haunt me one day. Um, I've certainly had bad days, you know, and things that have kept me up at night and reflecting on stuff. And there's certainly images burned in there that I, you know, would rather not have. Um, so far, it hasn't been much of an issue for me, but that isn't to say it couldn't be one day um, and that uh, it wouldn't be for another forecaster you know, with the very same experience. Sure. And sometimes it just takes one, you know, one one image, you know, that can kind of serve as the trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have resources, you know, we work for the state government. Um, so there's resources available to us. There are people that we can, we can talk to if we feel like we need to.
2: Mm-hmm. It's nice to have that support network, but I think I think just amongst the the community, the professional community, there there could be a support network there as well. As just talking talking it out with some some other people that have been there, you know. Yeah, I
0: mean, yeah, I'm no expert on you know handling PTSD, but certainly um, talking with people seems to be a common theme mm-hmm. that helps. All right. Well,
2: Brian, do you have any any stories or any pivotal moments in your career where the the light bulb went on or Any close calls? Well, I was caught and
0: buried in an avalanche when I was Mm nineteen, so I was really young, and I was just starting as a mountain guide. And I had taken my avalanche classes, um, you know, the intro. I can't remember what they were called at the time, but kind of a level one and two course. And I was just starting to get into some ski guiding, Um, and I thought I had a better handle on you know this stuff than I did. Um, and so I was out ski touring with a friend. This was up near Loveham pass, but, um, in an area that doesn't get skied very much, you know, across the highway from essentially like Arapahoe basin. And this was back in the nineties. So there wasn't that many people out there. Uh, most of the traffic was right near the pass. And so I wanted to put my new skills to use. And so we got farther afield and we're skiing at that time. I was still on telemark skis because that was really then st- it was, one of the, it was one of the better ways to get around, uh, just on three-pin bindings. And so we were skiing down, and I don't remember exactly what happened, but I know we did. I triggered a, a soft-slab avalanche uh, behind me. The snow came around from behind my back and pushed me forward because my heels were free. I ended up laying flat, you know, stomach down, in the snow, and the snow washed over me. And I was fully buried, but fortunately only about a foot deep. And my partner, I didn't go very far. So my partner, who had taken some of the avalanche classes with me, had eyes on me the whole time and came and just uh, reached into the snow and grabbed my backpack and pulled me up. So I was only under there for, uh, God, I don't know, maybe a couple minutes. It certainly seemed like a long time, but that was a big wake up call for me. Um, I would, I feel fortunate in some ways that that happened to me early in my career, and. I started to learn humility probably at an earlier age because of it um which i think has served me well um, to make it into this stage of my career um but you know i it's you think about the odds that stack up over time and that that's kind of what hits me you know you think about things like oh you know is it is a one in a hundred chance of getting killed in an avalanche a reasonable risk and A lot of people might say, yeah, and I've certainly come to the point in my career where I'm like, it's not. Because 1% chance, if you keep doing that over hundreds and hundreds of days, um, you're going to get bit. And so now I uh, have come to the place where I don't – we don't know exactly where the line is, um, but I get – I don't get nearly as close to it as I used to. I mean, there's always going to be
2: uncertainty in this game, right? Oh, yeah. And Absolutely. So, so how do you deal with that uncertainty?
0: I give myself a big buffer for being wrong. Mm. I give myself wide safety margins. With terrain? Yeah. Yeah. No. With terrain and if I have any doubt, I just defer to safer options. So mm. I never get into the place where I must travel through avalanche terrain. Right. I just don't put myself in that position anymore. Um, you know, and that's both recreationally and for work. For work, we're out there gathering data. And no data is worth dying for. Right. Um, and no ski trip is worth dying for. I'd just rather come home. And so if I'm not supremely confident about the avalanche conditions, I pick a safer objective. There you have
2: it, folks. That's pretty sound advice from Brian Lazar there. Um So when you guys are forecasting, are you always in teams of two or more, or do you ever – Are you Uh, In the field? Yeah, in the field. Are you you traveling solo at
0: all? We – because we're so spread out, it's actually harder to get out with each other than you might think. Mm -hmm. So we do do some field work with other staff members, but we often are going out with volunteers. Um, So it's people who want to go out into the backcountry, don't mind – going slow and poking around and digging snow and figuring things out. And that list of volunteers is usually cultivated, you know, from our own kind of personal connections. Mm-hmm. Um, although we do have requests for people to go out and volunteer. And so sometimes we do, we are able to accommodate those requests. Um, we do allow for solo travel. Um, we've got a field safety plan in place that does allow for solo travel. Um, it does require things like if you're going to be alone in the backcountry you need to be wearing an airbag. Um, I'd say the vast majority of the times where we've got an avalanche forecaster going out solo, they are not—they're avoiding avalanche terrain, but yeah. they are collecting data. Sure. Oh, yeah. uh, you can't—we don't allow people to go out solo on a snowmobile. Okay. So if you're going out on a snowmobile, uh, we do require a partner. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the thing is—I mean, some some stuff's got to be working, right? There's been an an explosion in backcountry use we're trying to trying to get a handle on quantifying that but you talk to anybody and there's more people than there used to be out there
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, yet our fatality rate has not tracked that rise so something's working and i've got to believe it's a combination of better public safety messaging coming out of avalanche forecast centers um, a better approach to avalanche education, which focuses more on decision making in high risk environments uh, and less on uh, on snow science being the central core of you know what you learn in a recreational avalanche course. So in some ways, there's some encouraging trends there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, what does worry me a bit is that, you know, back when I first started to do this to get deep into the backcountry, you needed fairly good uh proficiency on your gear i mean the, the gear was not great it was you know skinny skis or telemarks or old ramer bindings and things like that and uh, to get deep into the backcountry and ski variable conditions and that type of equipment you, you had to be excellent in, in your sport um, with the modern equipment and like fat skis and rocker tips and lightweight tech bindings like the backcountry is accessible to anybody um, really. I mean, which is in some ways great. Um, you know, there's, we can all get curmudgeon about it because our, our, our stashes are a little bit more crowded than they used to be. And, you know, there's still this limited amount of powder and there's more people like competing for it. So you kind of worry about the feeding frenzy stuff that's going on. And I, I hope that the trend in like advancements in safety equipment, things like airbags, um, are not causing people to take more risk um, that does kind of worry me um, and when I see people kind of it's airbag packs and then body armor and things like that it's this is great as long as you're using it the right way and I think about it a lot like just driving safety it's great to have an airbag in your car it's great to wear your seatbelt. Um, it's great to have a, a helmet on while you're skiing um, but you still don't want to get in an accident So I really hope that that ends up staying at the top of the public safety messages. Don't get caught. The rest of the stuff is just to improve your odds. If you do.
2: Right. that's really good advice, Brian. I I often think about that as well. And it's just really another tool in the toolbox. And, you know, if you are going to be wearing an airbag, like I wear my airbag, even when there's almost no avalanche danger, right? It's just something I wear, just like I wear my seatbelt.
0: Driving just down to the corner store or across the country I will say with the airbags it's not like your airbag in your car so you've got to practice with these things mm. so we end up doing a lot of avalanche investigations where people are wearing airbags but they're buried and the trigger is stowed um, they were unable to deploy it or um, in some occasions the deployment failed as an equipment malfunctioned so Think about being able to pull your airbag trigger when you get caught in an avalanche, and that is something that needs to be practiced um, for it to work effectively.
2: Um, I've heard about people practicing with, like, somebody trying to attack them, like tackle them to the ground and then try and see if you can pull your airbag while that's
0: going on. It's not a bad way to practice. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not quite – it needs to become uh, an intuitive reaction Mm -hmm. um, because you can't be thinking about it. And I will say if (laughs) – if you ever ever have a second of thought that you might need to pull your airbag, pull the airbag. It's worth the embarrassment of stuffing it back in there, even if an avalanche didn't happen. Yeah, um, a lot of you know there's too many avalanche fatalities where the air the, the trigger is not out because people are going uphill and don't think they're exposed in avalanche terrain. Our Sheep Creek avalanche accident here in 2013 had a number of victims buried and killed wearing airbags with the trigger stowed
2: hmm.
0: um a lot of people do get people get caught on the way up you should anytime you're under or in a strain train that trigger should be out and you need to test the equipment yeah test and practice
2: well brian thanks a lot for sitting down with us today oh, yeah my pleasure and sure. it was great chatting about about a day in the life of a forecaster and to learn a little bit more about the caic as a whole no oh, my pleasure i look forward to hearing it and uh you coming to seesaw Oh, yeah. you right. Seesaw tomorrow. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we'll see you there. Cheers. Thanks, Caleb. Yeah, thank you.
1: Well, there you go. Thanks again, Brian, for taking the time to sit down and, and chat. That was a great interview. Um, I hope you all really liked it. Once again, I'd like to thank the sponsors of the show, TAS Gazex and 10 Barrel Brewing. I could not do it without you. 10 Barrel, I swung by Bend on my my way out of town, and and they loaded me up with seven cases of beer. So um, if you see the van rolling around Colorado, swing on by, grab a cold one, and drink beer outside. The musical tracks on this episode were performed by Grammatic with permission from the artist. All right, we'll see you next time. On November 1st for the third episode, we'll be rolling it out. Once again, you know, I have these uh, regularly scheduled podcasts to come out on the first and the 15th of every month. So go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, go to Google Play, anywhere you find your podcasts, and subscribe to this podcast. And it would be great if you could rate and review the podcast as well. It helps helps out. I love getting feedback from y'all. And until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.